This week on Life and Faith. Are there values here, I'm not a Christian by the way, but are there values embedded in Christianity to do with the preciousness of life that I would hate to see go? And the answer is yes. I have now committed to be with this person for life. Philosophy should be done for everybody. There are no shortage of stones that you can pick up and throw. You cannot change the other person. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. And this week, I'm sure you're all aware of this, marks the 300th anniversary of the birth of Scottish philosopher and economist Adam Smith. I was all over this. <laughs> no, you were. Now, among other things, he's considered the father of capitalism. And you might have heard the phrase, the invisible hand of the market. Well, that's from Adam Smith. It's the idea that you leave people to pursue their self-interest and you don't control or regulate buying and selling in the marketplace. He proposed that self-interest would lead to competition and that would provide good outcomes for society as a whole. Well, that's putting it a bit simply, but I think that's the gist. That is the gist and that actually is the limit of my understanding of <laughs> economics. But happy birthday, Adam Smith. And yeah, this whole invisible hand thing has been very influential. But the way that I've kind of come to this as well is that some feminist economists have said that this invisible hand controlling the market isn't the full picture. They say there's also an invisible heart that's mm. holding up the entire show. And this invisible heart, that's the title of a very influential book written by Nancy Folber, who's a feminist economist. And that book makes the case that compassion and care play their own role in the market. It's not just self-interest going on. And one way that that can look is that there's this caring work that is invisible that doesn't show up on measures of GDP. So it makes a huge, if unrecognised, contribution. You need someone to look after the bodies that then turn up at the workplace. Uh, and we do want to recognise that today. So on this Life and Faith, we're bringing you a couple of conversations about this invisible heart that Justine's talking about. And these two conversations you had, Justine, yes. with Firstly, Anne Mann, the journalist and social critic, and also Andy Thorpe, who's a young woman who, among other things, has been her mum's carer since she was 10 years old. Now, both of these conversations highlight the critical role played by care in people's lives. Yeah, and we're going to begin with Andy. So Fred, Andy's mother, has rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease which attacks the joints. And from what I understand, it makes mobility progressively worse over time. Now, Fred's lived with that condition for as long as Andy can remember. So here's Andy telling us about her family and what it was like to be her mum's official carer while she... Andy was still very much a child. I am Andy. I am the eldest child. I have a younger brother whose name is Hamish, a younger sister whose name is Evan, and then my mum, her name is Fred. We all have guys' names. Very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> Easy to remember at the same time. Yeah. Now, Andy, you've been your mother's official carer mm. since you were 10 years old. Yeah. Give me a sense of what it's like as a 10-year-old to suddenly be given all this responsibility right before your time. Totally. So along with many other 10-year-olds, I was doing nippers, we were going to Sunday school and church, uh, we were doing activities at our local school. What that looked like for me was that 
as well as doing all of those activities, I suddenly had to make sure that my mum could get up and down the stairs that we have at home to come out with us to those activities. It meant that for times she had different equipment like moon boots or crutches meant slowing down so that she was able to do it. Uh, do it being come with us to those many activities so when I was younger it looked like well now I'm the one pushing the wheelchair around manly um, sometimes successfully sometimes not so successfully (laughs) and making sure when we were younger well you've got to clean the mess that we made off the floor so that mum doesn't trip over because she doesn't have that mobility that would allow her to pivot So in those terms, when we were younger, it looked like negotiating very small things, uh, which to us was super normal. You're meant to clean your floor anyway. For us, it just looked like cleaning the floor so mum doesn't fall over and break something. Now, Andy's father had exited the family, so the responsibility to care for Fred fell on Andy. But not entirely. Her siblings all played their part in looking after their mum. Hamish helped her up and down stairs, Evan would put Fred's shoes on for her, and Andy, remember this started for her as a 10-year-old, looked after Fred's medication. So what was a normal day like for that family back then? It looks like getting up and assessing what my mum's condition is, because with rheumatoid arthritis, she can have a flare-up. So from day to day, her symptoms look very different, Um, and it's also characterised by a lot of fatigue, because pain causes a lot of fatigue. Uh, so we were able to take it day by day, take it hour by hour, assess what was going on. And I think for me, try to build a plan of how can we just do things as a normal family? Uh, and I think that's always been all of our philosophy. It isn't too far fetching from what other families do. There's just a lot more consideration that we have to take into going for a swim or going to church or being able to go to the supermarket. I became almost like a second mother. I hate that title, but almost like a second mother to make sure that my siblings were okay, but also someone else to have eyes on. Is my mum okay? Is she um, going to be okay through the night, through the day? When I go to school, who's going to look after her and what sort of things do we need to have prepped to make sure that she's going to be okay? But as any child of parents with disability can testify to you're always helping and caring no matter if there is another person another nurse or carer or parent in the picture you're always helping the sibling parent grandparent that is in your life because you love them and you will do those extra things for them anyway so while it was a big change it also wasn't too foreign from what we were already doing just a lot more responsibility If at this point Andy seems wise beyond her years to you, well, you're not alone. She's very level-headed about everything. But that full-time caring role, of course, has its ups and downs. I sometimes can be very mad about it and sad about the role that I've been given. Uh, It's not an easy one. I would say that I have a very lucky load. Uh, We live in an amazing country. I'm surrounded by an amazing support network Um, And I'm not in a war zone. I think we always, as a family, no matter what happens to us, have always said how blessed we are over, look what's happened to us, how unfair is this? But there's also a lot of scariness within caring. Um, Suddenly you're 10 and you have the medical responsibility for another adult. I don't think that's talked about enough, um, but as a registered carer, 
uh, especially with no other parent in the picture. I am my mum's medical voice. I control her. Her advocate. Yeah, her advocate. And so there was a really scary point in our lives where she actually ended up being quite sick. She uh, had a severe infection and because she's immune compromised, she ended up in the ICU. Now, this didn't happen just once. It happened twice. And it was hands down the scariest moment of my life. I watched my mum die, be resuscitated and come back to life. And I was 15. At this point, I can't even drive. Um, I feel like when it's scary, it is definitely easy to say, why me, why us? When it's hard, it's easy to say that too. But I would say that it's an opportunity that not many other people get. I get to care and love my mum through caring. And I get to show that to my siblings as well. And of course that happens in a normal family, but I feel very honoured that I get that role. It's something that I see as an honour, it's a privilege, but at times it can be really scary. Most people would assume that 22-year-olds aren't carers as well. So in a weird way, your status as a carer is kind of invisible. Hmm. What's the personal cost of that? It's really interesting. So caring is not often a part of my life that I share. I'm sure that even my friends don't understand what that even looks like to them. It's not that I don't feel comfortable to share it. It's more that I think me and my family are so many other things than caring or disability. And it feels so normal to us. It's not something that I bring up a lot with my friends or colleagues or it's not something that I think I make the defining feature of my identity, but it is part of my identity. So it will look like not being able to do things. But in saying that, I am a 22 year old and I enjoy being able to swim and go out to dinner with my friends and be able to go to church and be involved in activities uh, and volunteer. So I look like a very normal 22 year old. And then if you look a bit deeper, you'll see that my family, we, we don't follow those normal structures, no gender structures or no parental structures. Everything's kind of a little bit reversed. Um, we don't get to do fun dinners out often or go to concerts like I see my friends with their parents do because it's not something that my mum is able to do. She has very limited time on her feet or being able to sit or being outside. But it makes those times where we do do those things so beautiful and we cherish them and we still have a lot of great quality family time. It just looks a little different from everyone else. Andy may not want to be defined as a carer, but in 2014, she was named New South Wales Young Carer of the Year. It's funny, I do push away from that title of carer because, like I said, I don't want it to define me, not in a negative way, but there's so much more that I am besides from that. But it's also funny that we, as a society, will look at different roles that we have and not a sign that you're a carer. Um, So I have a lot of friends that are school teachers or nurses and they're a carer. They just do it through their job. Or I have friends that have been able to volunteer and they look after their local soccer team or they coach dance. That's caring just in a different way. But we all care. If you're a parent, you care for your kids. If you're a kid, you care for your family. Um, we all care just in different aspects. And so I think it's it's nice that we assign caring in the way of looking after people with disability, a certain role, because it is. It is a huge undertaking. You are not just there for them. 
you're the emergency nurse and doctor, you are now a chef, you are suddenly an occupational therapist, you are a dietitian, you are so many roles condensed into one. And I think it does definitely deserve the title that it has. But when I won the Young Care of the Year, it was quite a shock to me. By that stage, I'd been doing it for four years and it was actually my godmother who had nominated me for it. She was a nurse at a public hospital and had seen the advert and thought, I'm going to nominate her. And it was beyond lovely and it was so nice to receive the award. But in my heart, I knew that an award didn't matter. It mattered that I was looking after my family in the best way I knew how. We'll come back to Andy a little later in the program, but we're switching gears for now. Justine also spoke to the social critic Anne Mann about the invisibility of care in our culture. Until recently, that is. In 2021, Sam Mostyn, who presently heads up the federal government's task force for women's economic equality, said that a post-pandemic Australia needed to put care at the centre of the economy. This was a blistering address that she gave uh, at the National Press Club in 2021, right when lockdown was fresh in our minds. And she said in her speech, quote, Australian women are tired of being the heartbeat of the Australian economy, providing the essential infrastructure that is care, but with little reward or value for doing so. Women are tired of waiting for the right time to be prioritised. So she basically said, look, government, you always want to invest in major roads. This is the critical arterial (laughs) system that holds everything up, right? The work of women. Yeah, so if, if that's any indication, and now that she's with this task force, we're hearing more these days about the care economy or the invisible heart. But I think it's worth saying that Anne Mann was way ahead of the rest of us. She wrote the book Motherhood, How Should We Care for Our Children in 2005. And that spelt out the invisibility of care work and yet also the the critical ways that it knits the fabric of society together. So since then, she's also contributed to The Monthly and written a quarterly essay on this topic. So Anne joined me from her home in rural Victoria and I began by asking her why care is so disregarded. And why we imagine the ideal worker as someone without caring responsibilities. That really became the norm because we had a model of the family for most of the 20th century, which was uh, the breadwinner male and the at-home wife, uh, so the homemaker wife. And she would have taken, been out of the workforce, but she would have taken on the responsibilities not only for raising children, but also for looking after the uh, old people in her family, the sick, neighbours, you know, so that there was a invisible unpaid care economy that was supporting the visible market economy. I think Wayne Swan, when he was treasurer, called care responsibilities lead weight in the workers' saddlebags. So oh, they're gosh. regarded as um, a bird. <laughs> that comment has not aged well. <laughs> it has not aged well, no. So, uh, But I think there's another thing here that we need to look at, which is, That was the model up until about 1960s, 70s, but then it changed with the advent of feminism. But feminism really got going as a mainstream idea at the same time as neoliberalism in the 1980s. So neoliberalism, you know, meaning you have a small state, meaning you um, unleash the animal spirits of business, that you cut taxes, you cut welfare. It's about profit-making. And it's about profit-making. It's about a new hyper version of capitalism. So the fact that that took off in the 80s and 90s at the same time as feminism was 
increasingly taking a hold over not every woman's imagination, but, but many women's imagination for what they might think about is possible in their lives in terms of higher education and jobs and so on. But it meant that the acceptable form of feminism was all about paid work and you became an illegitimate employee if you had care responsibilities. You took time out perhaps to look after a small infant. You worked part-time after that. Um, and, of course, most of this caregiving was and still is um, female. So there's a sense of illegitimacy around care and the ideal person, not just, it wasn't just the ideal employee, it's the ideal person was economically self-sufficient, economic man, as they used to like to call it, who was independent, who was able to pay his own way in life um, and his time at work was not uh, modified in any way by taking on care responsibilities. So, you know, the, the part that was always there in a shadowy sort of way, you know, the idealisation of the mother, the attitude towards um, female caregiving um, was really on the back foot. People increasingly took their human value from the paid work they did. Um, I've had many people come up to me after talks, for example, who left the workplace to look after someone who's mentally ill or they had a child with a disability or they had an elder with dementia. And so... They always come up and they're incredibly relieved because I've been speaking about them with full weight, with full moral weight, with full respect for the way they've lived their lives and also see the kind of disadvantages economically it's meant for them but in a way that gives proper human value to their work, their unpaid care work. This is Life and Faith, and we're talking today about the care economy, how vital it is, how little it is valued. And Justine is talking with journalist and social critic Anne Mann. It's probably worth clarifying that Anne is all for women's economic independence through paid work, but her thinking raises questions about how some forms of feminism, boosted by this sort of neoliberal order, made paid work into something sacred which means that people outside the paid workforce were shamed and devalued as welfare bludgers, for instance, or just not very significant. Yeah, Anne gave me an example of this. So the Albanese government's first budget, delivered May 2023, has reinstated the single parenting payment for women with children up to 14 years old. It's mostly for women because they make up the bulk of single parents. Now, a former Labor government under Julia Gillard had limited the eligibility of that payment to women with children under eight years old. So the idea is when your youngest child turns eight, you have to move off this payment and go and work, right? But it really meant that a lot of families were at or below the poverty line as a result. So Anne sees that change under the Albanese government as a move in the right direction. It's a shift in emphasis and outlook without it as yet being a paradigm shift. We definitely need a paradigm shift. So in the most recent budget, there's been a really welcome attention to uh, this phrase, the care economy. One is better pay for aged care workers and it should also you know, be childcare workers as well, any, anyone in the care sector. That's long overdue. Uh, but there's also another thing which I think 
its genuinely important shift. And that is the extraordinary, pointless, vicious shaming of single mothers on government benefits has shifted so that they've changed that um, you can go up to 13, you know, so that when your child yeah. turns 14, you can keep receiving it. Um, so that's a very important shift because one of the casualties in uh, the neoliberal version of feminism, and what, there was not much protest at this, in 2014, Julia Gillard, of all people, she talked about the dignity of work, and she only meant paid work. So it's extremely mm. important that we certainly talk about what I'd call the dignity not of work but of labour. And labour yeah. to me means volunteer work, <laughs> It means unpaid work, it means care work, it means paid work, it means all of that. So you're contributing in some way or another. Rather than this narrow emphasis, as she called it, the dignity of paid work. So the idea of the welfare bludger, which was always faulty because the amount of welfare fraud is very small in Australia, so this idea of the welfare bludger, which really got going in neoliberalism, began to be transferred to anyone outside the workforce. Your human value. Mm. And I actually think this is an interesting point. Christianity has declined in church attendance in all sorts of ways. But are there values here? I'm not a Christian, by the way. But are there values embedded in Christianity to do with the preciousness of life that I would hate to see go? And the answer is yes. So the emphasis on you having value as a human being, just because you're a human being, I think came from Christianity and affected many policymakers, even though they weren't even aware of that, you know, where the original value sort of came from. But as um, a secular world increased and as neoliberalism took over and as this new, what I call the new sacred of paid work took over, that sense that you had a value, a human value outside your paid job began to disappear. And that's an extraordinarily important shift. And it is really that that began to allow this awful shaming of uh, welfare bludgers and, you know, anyone who's quite legitimately receiving government assistance um, for a time who obviously like to get back into paid work if they can or someone who's entirely worthily looking after children or an elder with um, dementia and so on. So somehow we began to exclude care without even sort of thinking about it. In 2014, the Australian Bureau of Statistics estimated that the value of the unpaid care economy was $434 billion, or at the time, 43.5% of GDP. If we don't count that as part of our national accounts, if we pretend that it doesn't really go on or doesn't matter or is unimportant, largely because women have been invisibly doing it for so long, it means we'll say something like, um, oh, we're wasting money. Christian Porter made an incredible blooper when he went, I think it was on uh, Q&A, uh, but he said that these youngsters who are looking after someone with a mental illness, you know, unless we get them into work, we're going to waste $500,000 on them. Now... <laughs> I, my mother had schizophrenia and as a very young woman at university, I was responsible uh, for her care. And the psychiatrists thought that care was extremely important and was keeping her out of hospital. And I'm sure that's right. She did actually recover from that episode, although she's had some since. But 
what about those people who actually go out of the workforce permanently to care for someone who has a severe mental illness? How is it possible that we've got to a situation where Ken Henry said we have to get women who are at home looking after children to lead lives of value? So there's, you see what I'm, all of my comments are saying, just stop. We have to disconnect the idea of a human being being of value from paid work. That's been a deadly kind of shift. And when I say deadly, I don't mean that rhetorically. You think of robo-debt. You think of the suicides which occurred because of the pursuit of people who were regarded as cheating and wrongfully mm. regarded as, as cheating and so on. So... This has enormous implications for all human beings. One of the things that I think Anne does really well here is reframe the debate. So if caring responsibilities are seen as a lead weight in a worker's saddlebag, as the former treasurer Wayne Swan said, what about seeing the opportunity to care for someone as a privilege instead? There needs to be um, a paradigm shift. It needs to be uh, an even more radical shift where we really reevaluate what it is we value in our lives. And I guess one of the most fundamental things from me is to get rid of the idea that the ideal is independence. I had an interesting exchange with my mother and my husband about uh, six, seven years ago. It was about someone driving her to a friend's funeral. This is in country Victoria. And she was a very fiercely independent woman and she found it hard to think that she would ask them to do this. And he said, why don't you think it's an honour for that person to help you? (laughs) And I thought, actually, that's really (laughs) the right way of looking at it. And we don't enough have a sense of the honour in all of this. You know, I'd love to go to a talk on care and not to have people come up to me afterwards and say, thank goodness you said that because they are living a life of invisibility and they're wondering and they're thinking perhaps they're a failure when what they're doing is extraordinary yeah there's something invisible about it there's something determinedly unseen we're being determinedly inattentive and we have been for too long to this it's not just skilled it's more than skilled um there's a intricacy and an intimacy (laughs) about giving care, a reading of another person and where they are at that moment. It's like Mm -hmm. emotional braille, feeling your way to where they are and then a kind of alchemy that if you respond to them in the right way. It's certainly true of a little child, but it's true of uh, someone who has dementia too and it would be true of someone with a disability. Anne has other ideas about how to overturn what we honour and value and how to encourage men to share caring responsibilities as well because caring is seen as a female thing. Well, Anne wants to reimagine it as a human thing. If you have a system of value where it's all about paid work and getting ahead and all the rest of it, it doesn't really give women who are trying to change things at home, which they must do if they are going into paid work, You can't keep the old division of labour and call it fair if you're both in the workplace. I mean, just at the simplest level, it's unfair. Um, And women suffer burnout and women are stressed and they're juggling. And it's the mental stress of having to juggle every single 
you know, costume for Halloween or (laughs) Christmas party or whatever it is and think about it all. So if we change the paradigm and say, okay, we've got not the breadwinner ideal, the independent man, all of that, but we've got instead the universal caregiver ideal where everybody is responsible for care. And actually you turn up in a workplace and there's this bright young spark of a male holding forth about his accomplishments and he's got this sparkling CV. But the interviewing panel looks at him and says, there is no evidence here that you have ever done any care work. Where is the evidence of community work, of time out on parental leave, elder care? We actually want someone, a good fit for our organisation is someone with a strong ethic of care. So we're looking for someone else. Now, that would change so much more than all the, you know, begging and hoping and complaining. So we actually need to change our attitudes fundamentally. And that's what I meant by a paradigm shift, where we actually value care so much that it should be on every CV exactly what contribution you've made beyond your work. And I don't just mean some uh, powerful position on some committee somewhere. But in this world where paid work is a new sacred, what purchase does that give women who are trying to redraw the boundaries at home? If you said, actually, instead of it all being about the obligation to go to work and said, we all have a human obligation to care and you are, if I may borrow from Joe Hockey in the great tradition, inverted commas, great, um, of rhetoric around welfare bludgers, what about the care bludger? Yeah, wow, that reframes it, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) It reframes it. What about the care bludger? Because their life, if they avoid care, whether it's in an individual household or it's in a larger household with someone who, an elder who with dementia, who exactly does the care for that person. If you think about it, the implications for that individual are enormous of other people being carefree riders. And carefree riders is something as well as the care economy we need to bring into the conversation. What's going to power this paradigm shift? Like, I'm really liking what you say about maybe the norms around interviewing people or that it would be a shame to not have any care demonstrated on your CV. Like, these are really concrete um, and beautiful things I would like to see happen. But how do you scale that? What would it take? Because <laughs> you're, you're asking for an, an overhaul in how we account for the true value of truly human work which we presently aren't really able to grasp. What would drive it? I actually think that so many people are left out of the existing world um, of value. So many people are at the margins. um, And only when you recognise those people and give voice to them uh, are you likely to have a much bigger social movement. You essentially need a, a rejuvenated social movement. We'll leave my conversation with Anne Mann there. But let's finish with a word from Andy. Because even though Anne is completely right that structural change and social change are needed to raise the value and worth of care, that's often invisible, there are glimpses available of what a community of care might look like. Yeah, it reminds me of the work, Justin, of Robert Putnam, the American sociologist, who has demonstrated that you'll often find high social capital in all sorts of communities, but especially in communities of faith. Now, this is, he says, 
the social glue that sticks people together and provides opportunities for people to get to know each other and get involved in each other's lives, especially in difficult times. I would say our family is a very small unit, but our family is also our church. And when I explain that to people who aren't Christian or aren't involved in a church, it often gets a few funny looks. I would say that these people are such a big part of my life and have seen me grow up or develop in certain ways that they are my family, just like how you would have aunties and uncles who weren't blood connected to you, but are part of your life. It's interesting. We have a lot of great support around us. We've got so many amazing family friends who will constantly be checking on me. I have had people who my mum would have texted at 10.30 saying, I'm in so much pain. And we had a family friend round in our house at 10.30 at night with a bag of peas and frozen salmon because that's all she had in her freezer. But all she wanted to do was support us and come and pray for us. And that was the best way she could at 10.30 at night. We've had people come in and actually take us on when my mum was beyond sick and we were unable to be cared for, let us stay in their homes for that time. We've had friends who, yeah, uh, doctors or lawyers who have cared and come and looked after my mum in certain ways. And while these are all great things, there's so much more behind why they're doing it. They're not doing it just to be good or to do nice things. I really believe that they're doing it to show others what God is like because God has showed us love first. They've really taken that on to show love to us as well. And so, yeah, when I explain that we're so close with our church community that we would call them family, that's really what I mean, that they are our family. You've been listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Justine Toe. Yes, I will be posting links to Nancy Folber's book, The Invisible Heart, as well as the work that Anne Mann has done in this direction. She's really great. You should check her out. Please do share this episode with someone you think might appreciate it. It helps get the word out to more people about life and faith. And thanks today to our producer, the always caring Alan Dalfate. Next week... I once was in an Australian church and I asked how many of you have heard bullets or any signs of war. Uh, raise your hand. None of those who were present raised their hand. If you ask this question in a Lebanese church or Syrian church or Iraqi church, you'll have a very uh, different response. <laughs>